Paul wrote to young Timothy and he said, give attention to the public reading of scripture. So it's always good, isn't it, to read the Bible in public. So I'm just going to read a little bit from 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things man looks at. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Are they still the youngest? Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went on to Ramah. Well, the topic I've been given to speak on this morning is King David and how his life points forward to the life of King Jesus. And if there'd been more time, I would have split you into little groups of three or four and said, how many things can you think of in the Bible, in the life of David, that actually point forward to the life of Jesus? But I think time is a little bit against that. So I've summarized on the screen similarities between them. Both were descendants of Abraham. Both were born in Bethlehem. Both were described at some time as shepherds. Both faced dangers in the wilderness. Both were anointed for service. Both became popular and were loved by the people. Both loved God and loved people. Waiting for this to wake up. Both defeated their enemies. Both experienced betrayal by someone close to them. Both were rejected by their own people. Both wept on the Mount of Olives over tragedies to take place in Jerusalem. And both died in Jerusalem. 
But the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. But we can also say that Jesus was God's heart. He came to reveal who God really was. There's some words that I rather like that come from a poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might stand amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. Or to put it in another way, he who shapes the burden for the back is the one who shapes the back. For the burden. And God does not give us jobs we are fit for. But he fits us for the jobs he gives us. And that was certainly true in the life of David. He wasn't suddenly launched into leadership. He was prepared carefully by God. So there came a moment as we read this morning. When Samuel meets the sons of Jesse. And they're all paraded before him. But when he meets the first son. He is tall and handsome. And Samuel immediately thinks he is the man. He hasn't learned his lesson. Because he'd previously anointed Saul to be king. Who was also tall, dark and handsome. But he was mistaken. And so Samuel was told. The Lord does not look on people. As people look on them. For the Lord looks on the heart. And you see when God measures someone. He doesn't run a tape measure up their back. To see how tall they are. Neither does he run a tape measure around their head. To see how intelligent they are. But God measures. The state of a person's heart. And David was later described as being a man after God's own heart. Because God could see as he looked into his heart that here was somebody who loved him and who worshipped him and would be willing to serve him. And so when God looks at us, he looks for a sincere and pure heart. He looks for more than brains or good looks or strength. To him, a clear conscience is more important than a clear complexion. A humble spirit is more important to God than a high IQ. Let's never forget when God looks at us, he looks on our hearts. And if our hearts are right and pure, then God will use us. So it's the first lesson Samuel had to learn. And then there came the moment when he not only met the sons of Jesse, but he anointed David as king. Arise and anoint him, God said. He is the one. So Saul took him and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So at the beginning of his life, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And that was true of Jesus. Like David, he had very humble beginnings. He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit in a peasant girl who came from Bethlehem. And Jesus too had a humble task as he was growing up. He worked in the carpenter's shop with his father. And the word that we translate carpenter, the word technon, actually means also somebody who works in stone, a house builder. So if you'd shaken hands with Jesus, his hands would have been rough and calloused as a result of all the hard work that he did. And so he, like David, had quite an ordinary background. But there came a moment too when he came down to Galilee and he was baptized in the River Jordan. If you've never been baptized, it's something God asks you to do. 
And it was amazing because John said, I need to be baptized by you, which was a wonderful testimony to the quality of life that Jesus had lived. But Matthew tells us what happened after he was baptized. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So just as David was approved by God, and anointed by the Holy Spirit, so Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was also anointed by the Holy Spirit. Then we can go on to say that both of them faced temptation. But David faced temptation and failed. We know there came a moment in his life when he was lounging on the rooftop. And you know, most of our temptations come during times of leisure. Satan finds mischief for idle hands to do. And from the rooftop he looked over and he saw a beautiful woman bathing herself. And he sent somebody to find out who this person was. And a messenger came back and said, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, she was married and he should have cut off his lustful feelings at that point. But now he invites her to the palace. She's obviously flattered to be invited by the queen. Adultery takes place. A baby is on the way. And when he discovers that she is pregnant, he then arranges for the murder of her husband. Who would have thought that King David would have sunk so low? He faced temptation and he failed. And I'm going to digress for a moment because we all face temptation. Have you faced temptation this week? It's not wrong to be tempted. It was Martin Luther who said, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And that's so true. And none of us can avoid temptation. We face it every day. But we can say it's not a sin to be tempted. Simply because Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. And we have in Jesus a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, but he never ever sinned. And we can also overcome temptation because God gives us the power to do that. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he will also provide a way of escape so that you can stand up to it. I had a friend who was away on business and um, he was staying in a hotel and there was a woman who tried to seduce him and invited him to her room. And of course he knew what the purpose of that was. And he walked into the room and the woman was very scantily dressed. But then he saw a Gideon Bible on the locker by the bed. And he walked out of the room. He knew he couldn't do it. And in that moment of temptation, God provided for him a way of escape. And invariably, when we're tempted to do something that we know is wrong, then God will find some way of helping us to see that what we're about to do is going to be a bad mistake. 
The contrast with Jesus is he was faced in temptation, but he was victorious. And it's amazing, after he was baptized, he went from the river Jordan and he immediately walked into temptation by Satan. And Satan is always out to tempt us. It's amazing that after the dove came down from heaven to anoint him with the Holy Spirit, he was immediately assaulted by Satan. But he defeated Satan by using the word of God. And he is someone who can help us to defeat Satan too. He lives within us. And there's a wonderful verse in 1 John which says, Greater is he who is at work in us than he who is at work in the world. And so we do fall from time to time, sadly. But we need to remember the potential to overcome temptation is always there. And so I quoted these scriptures early, got them a little out of order on my PowerPoint, but not to worry, they're very important scriptures. But here's a quote by Jerry Bridges that I particularly like. If we sin, it is because we choose to sin, not because we lack the ability to say no to temptation. We're not just defeated, we're simply disobedient. Is that true? I think it's absolutely true. Well, let's move on in the story. David experienced great popularity. He rose from obscurity to being someone who was extremely famous. It all began with the killing of Goliath. And the news of this spectacular victory put him on the map. And the news of David's victory spread like a prairie fire throughout the whole of the nation. And so he was really popular with the women. They came out singing, dancing with tambourines and lutes. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And the song hit the top of the charts and was on everybody's lips. He was popular with the people. All Israel loved him because he led them in their campaigns. And David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And and his name became well known. So here is David riding on a wave of popularity. But then Jesus also became very popular when he began his ministry. And it's all very carefully documented in the Gospels. It's Mark who records, news about him spread quickly over the whole region. And when Jesus was praying in a private place, the disciples came to him and said, everyone is looking for you. And the people came to him from everywhere. And on another occasion, the crowd was so great and likely to crush Jesus, he had to get a boat and push out to sea and talk to them from the waters. And then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't have even a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me to yourselves, to a quiet place and get some rest. And after the feeding of the 5,000, John records that they wanted to make him king. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again into the hills to pray by himself. Isn't it interesting? When Jesus was popular, he withdrew into the wilderness to pray. Has God used you lately to bless somebody? Has God used you as a channel of his grace and mercy? Because when God uses us, we do tend to feel a bit proud and a bit cocky. 
But the greatest thing we can always do is to withdraw from people who would massage our ego and make us feel better than we ought to. The greatest thing to do is what Jesus did and go and pray. I love the story of Professor Smith who had a guide to help him to climb the Weisshorn in Switzerland. And uh, he was thrilled to do this. And when he got to the top, he stood there in a moment of exhilaration and excitement. Suddenly he found the guide pulling at his trousers and saying, Down on your knees, sir. Down on your knees. The only safe place up here is on your knees. And I like that because the only safe place when God uses us is on our knees. He wasn't aware that he was standing on a precipice. A strong wind was blowing. So he was in a place of danger. And the only safe place when God uses us is on our knees. So that we wake up to the fact it isn't us who's done this blessing. It is God who's been at work through us. And then David faced extreme jealousy. As soon as the spotlight moves from Saul to David, Saul is eaten up with jealousy. And jealousy is horrible. I put on the screen two things about jealousy. Love is as strong as death, but jealousy is cruel as the grave. Anger is cruel and fury is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? And Saul becomes incredibly jealous of David. His eyes go green with envy and his spirit is consumed with superstition and his heart begins to boil with hatred. But though at first he loved David, his jealousy turned to resentment and he became so obsessed with his jealousy, he tried every means he could to destroy him. Is it possible that jealousy has crept into your heart? you envious of somebody who's better at something than you are? You know, sometimes even in church life, somebody can arrive who's a better musician, a better speaker, a better technician, a better gifted with children. And uh, we've had the center spot, then somebody arrives who can do things better than us. And we, if we're not careful, can become a bit jealous because somebody has come in and the spotlight has moved from us to them. We should recognize God gives different gifts to different people and we should embrace them and make way for them and use them. But sadly, sometimes jealousy consumes us as it did King Saul. And his jealousy turns to cruelty. Do you remember he tried to destroy David when he came to play his harp, when he was having his bad moods and he tried to pin him to the wall? And then he tries to trap David when he discovers that his uh, daughter is in love with David. He sets a dowry price. It's a pretty sordid story. He said, I want a hundred foreskins from the Philistines as the dowry price. Well, David goes out. Saul thinks he'll be killed in the process. But for good measure, he brings back 200 foreskins. It's not a very good picture, which is probably as well, because it was probably a bit messy. But when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Isn't that a tragic phrase? Saul never resolved or repented of his insane jealousy. He remained bitter and hostile, angry and resentful, full of malice and full of fear. And he was on a path of self-destruction. 
What a sad, sad phrase. He remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Then Saul's, David spared Saul's life. Remember he came into a cave where David and his men were hiding. And he didn't know they were there. And David crept forward in the darkness and cut off a piece of his robe. And Saul had no idea. It was all done so stealthily. And later he showed it to Saul and said, in effect, look, I'm not trying to kill you, even though you're trying to kill me. And then there was another occasion when he was on the other side of a great ravine and he was surrounded by all his men and his bodyguards were asleep as well as Saul himself. And David and his commander in chief creeps up and he says to him, kill him, here's your opportunity. But David wouldn't do it. He had a magnanimous attitude in the midst of all this jealousy. He said, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? And he goes on to say, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and be killed. See what he's doing? He's not planning revenge. He's handing it over to God and said, God will take care of this. And in the New Testament, we're encouraged. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So David was totally magnanimous. And Jesus, he faced jealousy and hatred too. Very soon, early in his ministry, as early as the third chapter of Mark's gospel, he went into a synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And everybody was waiting to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus did. And at the end, we're told, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And all he had done was heal a man with a withered hand. And then when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was so popular that all the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. But after he came down the mountain and he cleared the temple, we read those words. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So Jesus, he faced the same as David. He faced hostility and he faced people who were seeking to destroy him. And we move on in the story. Have I gone too far? David faced betrayal and rejection. One of the hardest things for David to face was when his son Absalom tried to take the throne from him. And he won over the hearts of the people. And David was absolutely broken hearted that his son would do such a thing. It must have been a terrible blow to him. And he was betrayed by not only his son Absalom, but also Ahithophel. And David has to leave the city because he fears that his son is going to destroy the city with the sword. And it says in 2 Samuel, come, we must flee. 
or no one will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will put the city to the sword. And then we get a really tragic picture of King David. David continued up the Mount of Olives as he was fleeing, weeping as he went, and his head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people covered their heads too and were weeping as he went up. Now David had been told that Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. So not only did his son Absalom betray him, also his friend and counsellor for many years, Ahithophel, did exactly the same. Who was Ahithophel? David's trusted counsellor. But also the genealogies show us that he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he was also having a son called Eliab, who was the comrade and close friend of Uriah. So the consequences of David's wrongs against Bathsheba and Uriah dragged his footsteps until he died. He had to face again and again, even though God had forgiven him, the painful fruits of his sinful actions. But you know, Jesus too wept on the Mount of Olives, just as King David did. Remember the words in 19 as he approached the city and saw Jerusalem. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known the day on which would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And then the words that come in Matthew 23 are heartbreaking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks over her wings, but you were not willing. So both King David wept over Jerusalem because he feared it was going to be destroyed with all the fighting with Absalom. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew it was going to be destroyed. And A.D. 70, Titus came and completely ransacked the city. So Jesus also knew betrayal and rejection. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, for the price of 30 pieces of silver, went to the high priest and said, I know where to find him and I can betray him into your hands. And he walks into the garden with the soldiers And he goes up to Jesus and he gives him a kiss and he says, arrest him. He is the man. And Jesus just turns to him and said, Judas, I knew you were going to betray him. But are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? It made the act of betrayal even more painful that he should do it with a sign of affection. And the closer the friend, the more painful the wound of betrayal is. But you know, Jesus was magnanimous in the face of betrayal, rejection and hostility. I love these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead... He did what King David did. He entrusted himself to God who judges him who will judge more justly. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Have you ever been let down by somebody 
whom you love and trusted. Well, in Jesus, we have somebody who went down the same pathway. And he knows and feels how we understand. And on that tragic night when Judas betrayed him, all the disciples forsook him and he was left alone. And you know, the word forsaken makes us think of all that's tragic in human experience. A soldier deserted on the field of battle. A young woman who's engaged, deserted by her fiancé in favour of another. Or a small child that's been rejected by heartless parents. It's a painful experience for anyone to go through. And there will be times of crisis and great difficulty for many of us. But one thing we can be sure of, he will never ever reject us. Even if in the midst of those experiences we feel alone, he has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And of course he was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. And he was forsaken that we might be forgiven. And that's the wonder of his work on the cross. But both David and Jesus faced death. And I'm coming towards the end. David died an old man at the age of 70. And he died in his own bed. Jesus died as a young man, aged 33, impaled on a Roman cross outside the city walls. David was buried in Jerusalem and rested with his fathers. Jesus was buried in Jerusalem, but that was not the end. On the third day, he rose again and he ascended to heaven where he was anointed as king by his father. And it's all summed up in these beautiful words from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humiliated on earth, but exalted by God to be a king in heaven. And what a reception he received as a king when he arrived in heaven. John in his writings in Revelation records this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. David's reign was short, mere 40 years. David's, King David's greater son, Jesus, his reign is forever and ever. And on his robe and on his thigh, this name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did you know there was a painting in the Royal Academy containing 158 portraits of kings and queens in history? And it's a beautiful painting by Charles Butler. And each person gathered around the King of Kings, each of the 158 rulers, the most famous ones in history, are all taking the attitude in the picture of what they adopted to King Jesus in life. First of all, shrinking away from the cross is Satan, the prince of darkness. And then there's King Canute there. He's bowing down, yielding his crown. 
And Cromwell is pictured kneeling before him. And Napoleon is pictured looking scornful. And Queen Victoria is there in humble adoration. And Constantine, the first emperor of Rome to be converted, is bowed in worship. So what is our attitude as we close our service to King Jesus? Have we ever knelt before him and said, King of my life, I crown you now. Is King Jesus living in your life today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our study of scripture. Thank you for the ways in which King David was a shadow of who King Jesus became. And we see so many things replicated in the life of Jesus that David went through. But we thank you. Jesus came through triumphant. He knew how to handle popularity. He knew how to face temptation. He knew how to forgive his enemies rather than become revengeful or bitter in spirit. And we thank you. He's left us a wonderful example to follow in his steps. And we pray today that we will let him be king in our lives, have his rightful place, and that we will bow in worship again before him this morning. Because we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.